0: Welcome along to another episode of Holy C of E with me, Jamie Franklin. And this week is a very special episode because we have an excellent guest with us. But I think in a unique turn of events, the people that I'm speaking to are actually in adjacent rooms at St. Stephen's House in Oxford. And I'll introduce you to the first and he can introduce you to the second. The first is, of course, student of divinity and all-round very interesting chap, Clinton Collister. Clinton, how are you doing today? I'm doing quite well today. It should be a fun conversation. Indeed, indeed, and I'm, I'm very, I feel very privileged to be beaming into the Anglo-Catholic stronghold in that venerable university city. Um, Clinton, we're going to be talking today about Verlin Staley's Catholic Religion, a Manual of Instruction for Members of the Church of England, talking about catechesis and how we help people to grow in the faith, and I'll hand over to you now so that you can introduce our very special guest.
1: Okay, it's my pleasure to introduce Kelvin Robinson, he's going to be talking to us today about the Catholic Anglican faith and Vernon Staley and Christian instruction and his own experience in education. Kelvin
2: welcome thank you it's an absolute pleasure to be here and I love the ironic name
1: of this podcast by the way or is it prophetic I don't know if it's ironic or prophetic <laughs> uh, aspiration exactly exactly uh, what, what's that saying from our, our lips to God's ears holy sea of ye uh, l- l- let it be so
0: it could have an exclamation mark after it. I suppose
1: that's not a bad idea so, so Kelvin and I are next door neighbors, and Ke- Kelvin is probably best known as a writer and pundit by night, but by day he is also an ordinand in the Church of England and a teacher. And so we, we were out for coffee and we got to talking about our, our journeys into the Anglo-Catholic Tradition and uh, Christian ministry and these sort of things, and he mentioned that he had recently read Vernon Staley's *The Catholic Religion*, which I, it has to be the best-selling Anglo-Catholic catechism of all time. I, I think it, it sold over, you know, went through over fifteen editions, and and I thought it would be fun to have him come on and and talk to us about that that book and then about catechesis and and you know teaching as both in terms of his experiences as, as a teacher, but then also what it's going to look like for him as a priest, you know, passing on the faith as a teacher. So I guess where, where to start, Kelvin. Uh, first off, I guess the, the question I would ask is, is for somebody with so many different sets of interests and skills, you have decided to give your life, to serving God as, as a priest in, 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 the, in, in his church. And so how did you decide to become a priest? And, and really, in, in your life journey, how did Christianity be, come to play such a central role? Oh, that's such
2: a massive opening question, Clinton. Um, first of all, I'll say I didn't decide to become a priest. Um, it's not something I want to do. It's very much a calling. It's something that I've been dragged into, um, I was living a very happy life as a school teacher, <laughs> um, and, and before that, I was in technology. And in fact, becoming a school teacher was the first part of my calling. It was the first part of my vocation. So I worked in uh, online media in technology. So I did um, mobile apps, web development, all of that kind of very fun stuff. And the way I describe it is a very superficial lifestyle. It was, it was amazing. We had a great team. We had lots of fun. Uh, we made a lot of money, um, and we had a good time. But it was just entirely unfulfilling it was good in the short term but in the long term it wasn't it just didn't seem like a a long-term life uh and i found that problems arose that nudged me in a different direction so in our company well in any company in tech to be honest we outsource um a lot of the coding work the programming to eastern europe or asia and that really struck me as a as a problem because i thought well why are we doing that we were doing it because they were cheaper. We were doing it because that's the only place we could find skilled programmers um, that just are not in the UK. So I thought that's a bit of an issue, especially since like everyone's talking about computing is is you know 21st century skill set. Why do we not have the skills here? And people would come to us with fantastic CVs, but just not the knowledge to back them up. So I, I thought okay, maybe there's an issue here in how it's been taught. And I looked into it, and this was around the time, coincidentally, that Michael Gove was putting in his reforms into education, which were all very sound. So there were a lot of things that all came into play at once that nudged me in the direction of thinking either very arrogantly or very naively that I could make a difference in this area. I could actually pass on some of these skills and teach some of these kids how to program um, and create some homegrown talent. And that was what I later learned to be the start of my calling into um, a more fulfilling life, a vocation of serving rather than serving myself. Um, So it was about serving the wider community at at first. And as I progressed through education, I rapidly, you know, within three years, I was on the senior leadership team. And then three years later, I was a um, consultant for the department for education. So I I was progressing through that quite rapidly um, in trying to reach as many people as possible. Um, But then I realized it's not the quantity that was important. It was the quality. And what I was seeing is that while we were giving these young people great skills, great, great talent, great knowledge, we were sending them out into the world with amazing grades, but no character. We weren't producing good people. We weren't sending out good Christians, is what it was, into the world. We were sending out kids with good grades. And to me, that wasn't enough. That was like part of the job. Like A major chunk of the job is missing. And of course, education these days is seen as something like a factory you know you send your kids off to school they come back with good grades and they can read etc but it's not how it always has been it's not how it should be education first and foremost is, is the job of the family as is this that is the start of the community but secondly it's about the wider person not just about their academic ability um so i started exploring that more at the same time as i was exploring my faith uh, which is something i can address later if you'd like me to But just everything just seemed to coincide at once to point me in the direction of actually what I'm doing here is part of what I should be doing and I need to um, gain some orthodox theology I need to gain some firm understanding of my faith in order to help pass that on and that needs to be part of the thing that I'm teaching if not the whole thing that I'm teaching I need to be teaching the gospel and not just um, C++ or Python
1: right right okay so you see this gap in skills and knowledge and you think okay there are all these people in in crisis they're jobless they're falling into vicious habits and one way we can help them is to give them the skills and knowledge they need to you know, provide for themselves provide for family have meaningful work but as this is going on and you see people making progress to this end you think okay yes they're providing for their sort of, I don't know, physical and, and mental needs, but what about their spiritual needs? So it, it seems like from from seeing this, this um, lack of wisdom and virtue in even good contemporary education to thinking, so I need to work as a priest, there, there's, there must be kind of a, something missing in the story in terms of how did you become a Christian who believed that um, th- 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 the truth revealed in Christ could help these students learn what it what it means to be wise and virtuous. Yeah, so, so part of that is the fact that I worked in Church of England
2: schools for the most part. Mm. Um, and it's just, again, it was just a badge. It was just something superficial on top. Uh, you know, most of these Church of England schools uh, profess to have Christian values but their Christian values are three key words that are on the letterhead that's mostly as far as they go unless there's a science inspection coming on or all the, the chaplains coming in um, and, and to me it seems that we should be asking where is Christ in this about everything that we do in, in, in a school setting um, and, it, and that wasn't the case so it seemed to me that even in, within the Church of England the established church our schooling is missing something and, and to why is that you know I did see one good example where we started the school day in church we had the whole weekly um it wasn't always a mass but we had a weekly um service in church on a monday morning to set the kids up for the week uh, both spiritually and mentally mentally and just get them in the right frame to to set out on a, on a week of, of rigorous learning and to me that seemed to centre them a lot more than just whatever uh, uh, fluff we were making up so it seemed to me that Faith is always the anchor or should always be the anchor. Um, And it was the missing piece of the puzzle.
1: Okay, That's helpful. So you you saw that in these Church of England schools, if they really were drawing from the resources of the Christian tradition and from the resources of the Church of England, it, it could make a difference in these students' lives. Now, you're studying at Staggers to become a priest. And so you're studying in the Catholic Anglican tradition. Is there something in particular about being committed to the faith and practice of the whole body of Christ um, across, across the ages that, that you think can make a particular contribution in terms of, in terms of education? Is that part of your, part of your journey?
2: Yeah, so it's it's not so much um, about the Catholic end of the church. To me, it's it's just about we are a sacramental faith. And as I was exploring my own personal faith, you know, I've always felt I had a relationship with God, but I didn't always necessarily have a relationship with religion, so to speak. I always struggled with organized religion because, well, we're all fallen and everyone's flawed. And I I just really struggle with the idea of following other people as leaders uh, because they can lead you down the wrong path. And there are so many wolves, and sh- sorry, so many sheep in wolves clothing, as we see quite often, uh, portrayed in mainstream media and, and, and certain other hierarchies. Um, so that was always a problem for me. So I was always trying to find my way um, because I, I felt like I knew God, but I didn't, at the time, what I didn't know was I didn't know Jesus Christ. And I only found him through the Eucharist. Mm. So I experimented with different types of churches. You know, so my father's family are Baptist my mother's family are church of England, but mostly nominally, you know, my my mum's mum went to church, but my mum didn't really, she was always, she had her own stuff going on, um, very busy. Uh, so I think I went to, I went to a lot of evangelical churches actually, in fact one of the reasons I moved to London was with my friends uh, at an evangelical church, but that's another story for another time, but I, I I never found anything. Nothing ever clicked. And I went, I continued to go. It wasn't like this didn't suit my preference. I I worked through it and uh, I I was searching, but nothing actually clicked until I experienced the Eucharist. And it meant something. And I felt something. I felt the presence. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what the Eucharist meant. I didn't know what the liturgy meant, but I knew there was a connection. Mm. Um, And so I explored that further. And I realized that this is why it's so important because this is when we are closest to god through through our lord jesus christ this this and this is why it, why it sustains us and this is why we need to do it as regularly as possible and why are we not all learning this why why is our a vast majority of our church forgotten well especially you know after the last over the last couple of years you could argue that we've forgotten that we are a sacramental faith and that's what sustains us mm. um and i you know i learned that i hadn't been baptized as a child and that was another a key moment when i realized that there was something missing. And maybe that was part of the faith journey that had been left behind.
0: Can I jump in, Clinton? Oh, um, please do. Yeah, I mean that's that's really interesting, Calvin. Uh, so, so when you had that kind of um, transcendent experience through the Eucharist, can I ask
2: how old were you when that happened? You can, but I don't give away my age. So, would you rather know how long ago it was, or how? Oh, old?
0: Well, I, well, okay. So, <laughs> so let, let me let me ask. Let me um, explain. Um, The reason I find this interesting is because I think that there's this sort of uh, assumption that that lots of people have, particularly, I think, people who are trying to sort of be cutting edge, in terms of evangelism and, you know, quote unquote mission, that um, traditional forms of Christianity are ineffective at reaching young people. And, you know, what we actually need to do is we kind of need to modernise or we need to think in a really sort of creative and innovative way about different structures or forms of worship in the church so that we can connect with where young people you know ostensible young people are actually at you know so we could have you know like um fresh expressions of church you know gathered around you know whatever it is like cafe church or messy church or you know skateboard church or whatever and i don't want to say that there's no value in those things at all but uh, it's certainly my conviction i'm sure it's i'm sure it's clinton's as well that um traditional forms of christianity particularly those which emphasize the aesthetic the transcendent the sacramental these have an enormous power to reach people including young people in a world which is increasingly devoid and denuded of transcendent mystical esoteric experiences we as i would argue especially in the church of england we have everything we need in order to really emphasize this and boost this, you know, our buildings, our sacraments, you know, the 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 way that we are embedded in pretty much every single community in the country. If only we would take hold of this resource and really believe in it, in it and have confidence in it. And your story just confirms to me, you know, you've got to, I'm sure you were young when this happened, you're still a young man now. So you must, you must've been young when this happened. Uh, and it was it wasn't the evangelical church that reached you but it was the it was the eucharist and it's very interesting that you say in particular that you didn't understand it when it happened it wasn't like someone was there explaining it to you but you just had a moment of encounter so that that is i don't know what you make of that but i find that uh, quite quite um quite compelling really
2: yeah i think about this a lot i think you're spot on father because what I see is a lot of arrogance, actually, from people who assume that they know what young people want, and young people don't want anything that's traditional. They want all this modern jazz, and some young people might want that, but a lot of young people don't. And it's also arrogant because church tradition or traditional liturgy has been around for hundreds of years. So who are we to suggest that we suddenly know better than everyone else that's come before us? I, I dislike that style of thinking, but yeah, to me, uh, you know, my, the church that I went to was a middle of the road. It was very via media. It wasn't. You know, I'm quite high church, high Tory these days, as I've found my way. But it wasn't um, extremely traditional, but it it, traditional, but it did have a lot of traditional elements to it, and they didn't turn me off. Um, But I think there's something about discerning on the church fathers and discerning on what's come before us that is so important, Um, and praying on the truth because there is a universal truth, and the moment we forget that, we become idolatrous don't we? We, we we idolize other things
0: yeah yeah i mean on what you've just said i i heard um an interview on um i think it was uh, damien thomas's podcast damien thompson sorry on the spectator with uh, the um, I think he's is he the Metropolitan Patriarch of Great Britain. His name is Bishop Nikitos. And he was ma- the, the, the thing that he felt most passionately about in this entire interview, that it would be absolutely wrong for the Orthodox Church to innovate in the liturgy by using multiple spoons to communicate the Eucharist to people after it had been consecrated. And the the reason it was the reason that's so important is because for them, you do not change the liturgy. The liturgy is a gift which is given to you and you don't have the authority to change it. So even an issue which would seem to us to be sort of um, obscure, like how many spoons you use to distribute the Eucharist. This was an absolute this was an absolute um, no, no for Bishop Nikitos, because because that is just not your decision to make. And I mean, if you compare that with our attitude in the Church of England, we're just on the complete other end of the spectrum where we have this kind of liturgical chaos where every man does what's right in his own eyes.
2: Yeah, This is why whenever I'm abroad, I just find the nearest Roman Catholic Church because I know what I'm going to get. It doesn't matter what language they're speaking. uh, It doesn't matter what the the local culture is. I know what the mass is and it's going to follow the same liturgy wherever Mm -hmm. you go, pretty much. Whereas you can't say that about the Church of
1: England at the moment. We're such a disparate mess. Mm, Yes, it's true. It's true. Well, and and that is a good bridge to our discussion for this day, because there was a a time at which uh, a a coherent account could be given of traditional Anglican liturgy, uh, faith and practice, right? And so what is it, Calvin, that made you take notice of Vernon Staley's book, The Catholic Religion, and why do you think it was? Um, why do you think people should read this old book today? And, and, and how do you think it could be um, useful in, in parishes where people are trying to pass on the faith? So I absolutely love this book. I can't remember how I came across it now. Somebody must have
2: told me about it, but it was so difficult to track down. So for the benefit of uh, people who are listening and not watching, I'm holding up a copy of this. This is a very old version that I managed to find on eBay for much more more expensive than I would like to have paid. But on places like Amazon, all I could find were reprints, and the reprints were terrible. So it seems to be out of production, which is a great shame. But we could really do with something like this, because it literally is a manual of instruction. And, I mean, where to start? If I start close to the beginning it starts off with the conversion of England. So a history buff, like myself, loves loves this kind of stuff. It's just telling the story of how we've always been a Christian nation. Because so many people out there, naysayers, will say, well, actually, you know, that we didn't become a Christian nation until the pagans were converted in XYZ. And this takes you back to the roots. So, you know, you can go to Augustine or you can go further beyond that. Um, and it really tells you how this became or how this has always been a Christian nation. But then, after the history, we've got what is essentially a book of catechism. And why I found this interesting is because I wanted to know more about the Oxford movement. And I've asked my priests in the past about, well, what, what about the 39 articles? They seem so problematic. And there was, oh, yeah, but the tracts explain that. But the tracts don't really explain anything. They're very complicated. And it's it's difficult to get your head around where we stand on these things. And this just lays it. it's so accessible. just lazy to all out there. So if I, if I pull apart a few of the things that I've bookmarked, I've got my own little ribbons in here because this is what we do, isn't it? <laughs> nice. uh, some of the things that stood out to me. So the sacraments, the sacraments are a key point. So it explains that the word sacrament had a wider use in the past. So now we tend to think that, you know, of the, the two or the seven sacraments as as a set set you know the outward sign of an inward grace but the word sacrament had a wider meaning in the past and that you know the creed was described as a sacrament by the church fathers and you know we often hear about the church being described as, as a sacrament but then he goes on to explain the, the problem, well, not, yeah, yeah, the problem with the Book of common Prayer, you know, so many Protestants would say, but there are only two sacraments, and so many Catholics would say, yeah, but there, there are seven. And it's actually, it's more nuanced than that, as most things are. If I can quote here, the Church of England does not teach that there are two sacraments only, but there are two only as generally or universally necessar- necessary to salvation. Hmm. The five lesser sacraments she also acknowledges, but not as generally necessary to salvation. These lesser sacraments are not on this account to be set aside as of no importance. They are, in their degree, visible signs of inward grace. So that right there just blew me away because I explained something that I've always struggled with. So, like, But we believe all these things in the Church of England, but there's a contradiction um, and it's not really a contradiction. If I go to my next bookmark here. Oh, so ornaments of rubric. Um, So candles, uh, incense, you know, altar lights, uh, vestments, all of these things that certain Puritans would have frowned upon. And it explains that in the Book of Common Prayer, um, immediately before the order of morning prayer is is found the direction known as the ornaments rubric. And here is to be noted that such ornaments of the church and of ministers thereof at all times of their ministration shall be retained and be in use as were in this church of England by authority of parliament in the second year of the reign of our King Edward Sixth, So again, something else that's been seen as a bit of a contradiction or seen as problematic. You know, these, these Anglo-Catholics, they just want to be papists, and it's, it's not, nothing is ever as simple as that. Mm. I quite like that there's, you know, in the section about baptism, it, it proclaims, you know, that um, the baptism of infants, which has been obviously another uh, thorough debate of whether people should be baptised as children or not and there's quite a lengthy chapter on holy communion and what it means and and the background behind it and for people like me who came to the faith um you know later on in life not too late obviously but you know not i wasn't a cradle catholic these things need to be explained and we need proper catechism and i think that's often missing i was fortunate that in Before my baptism, we had uh, quite good classes, but I've been in parishes where, you know, people just turn up and get baptised and it's not always the case. So something like this would have been fantastic. Of course, we always have the very reliable catechism of the Catholic Church, but it's not always convenient or it's not always appropriate, depending on the setting, because we are the Church of England. We are an Anglican Church, after all. And then in regard to the 39 articles themselves, um, the 39 articles are not articles of faith like the creeds, and they are not imposed on members of the Anglican Church as necessary terms of communion. The clergy only subscribe to them, and the sense in which the subscription is understood has been stated by Archbishop Bramhall as follows, we do not hold our 39 articles to be such necessary truths without which there is no salvation, nor enjoin, enjoin ecclesiastical persons to swear unto them, but only to subscribe to them as theological truths for the preservation of unity among us that's the importance of the articles to keep us united not mm. to swear against all four and i think a lot of that is is very helpful to me so i think it could be helpful to other people um mm. and i just don't understand why something like this isn't given out anymore <laughs> yeah
0: well it it, it comes uh, i think a lot of this really touches uh, something that we keep on coming back to again and again in this podcast which is the issue of authority um it's interesting isn't it that um staley i don't know when he wrote this i've got his dates here but 1853 to 1933 so we're talking about somebody who was really a kind of second generation oxford movement but it was really as far as i'm aware it was kind of more towards the end of the 19th century that you start to get this kind of uh anglo-papalist movement within the you know within or you know as an offshoot let's say of the of the oxford movement but really this underlines um the what the oxford movement was really about which was not about you know as we've talked about before, it wasn't about trying to sort of pretend to be Roman Catholic or to sort of reclaim um, some kind of Roman Catholic identity, which had been confiscated at the Reformation. It was actually to celebrate the reformed and Catholic heritage of the Church of England and to be more faithful to it. Um, Yeah, to perhaps to sort of try and emphasise the sort of sacramental or small C Catholic aspects of the Book of Common Prayer. But um, these things had largely been forgotten at the time. And they needed to be retrieved. So I, I think that's a really important point. And as we've said before, Clinton, um, this is what we believe needs to be revived nowadays in the Church of England is actual proper, not, not any proper catechesis, but proper catechesis in line with a, a coherent identity. Because this is this is the problem we have in the Church of England is that it's just like we've just been talking about. It's just this kind of hodgepodge of of various competing theological and ide- ideological um, uh, constellations of belief, and we need we need something coherent, particularly within the Church of England's um, High Church movement. So, I think that this is this is a, a badly needed uh, correction, and that we would do well to return. To people like Staley, you know, like we've talked about before, other people who have largely been forgotten, like Darwell Stone, uh, E.J. Bicknell, and and others. Francis Hall's another mm-hmm. one whose book has just been republished by Nashota House, and they've um, uh, Ben Jeffries has has, um, has made available a copy to me. That's another wonderful work of dogmatic theology. So the the resources are there, but no, not very many people know about them, and we need to somehow get them into their hands so I don't know that's that to me is, is the problem
1: but I, I don't really know how you do that hmm. but I, I think that this is an excellent little introduction to to Christianity and I was given this book when I first visited an Anglican church'm I think I mentioned this in our first episode when I was sharing my story but the, the priest there he gave me a copy of Vernon The Catholic Religion, Michael Ramsey's The Gospel in the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. and I think okay, uh, I Sim- simply Christian by by N.T. Wright, and uh and it, it it really was was helpful for me as somebody who was trying who was searching for uh, a Christian tradition that was more rooted in the the consensus of the church and and the witness of the church fathers and the saints and the martyrs and 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 it kind of showed well here here is a way that that this um yeah I don't know Anglo American tradition shares these roots and I, I, I and I think um in his day you know Staley was very you know serious scholar of of liturgy and history and it's fascinating in the intro he talks about all the different Scholars, he, he was um, sending the book to for notes as he was coming out with these new editions. But one thing that's similar to this podcast, Father Jamie, I don't know, I'm sure you noticed it at the beginning of this book, but Staley opens with uh, talk, t- talking about the rule of faith and looking at the same sermon we did when we first started the podcast by Lucy, Lucy yeah. uh, uh, about, you, you know, this sort of emphasis on the authority of Holy Scripture and the importance of the Patristic consensus, the the creeds, and then un, un, understanding and receiving our Anglican formularies, you know, in sort of harmony with with uh, that Catholic Christian inheritance. So so he's kind of going at this with the same premises that that we are, which I think is helpful. And then to Kelvin's point, he's explaining the the history. You know that that we have a a, a great history of theologians and faithful Christians to follow in, in the Church of England, I, I found that helpful as well. So I, I agree with, with what you're saying, Calvin. Now, as you think, Father Jamie, about your own experience, because you're actually out in the parish um, doing catechesis and so on, like what, what sort of things have been helpful? I, you know, Calvin and I both found this book helpful. Uh, are this, this kind of approach, do people seem interested in these sort of questions?
0: Yeah well I, I mean I'm as a curate I'm kind of at the outset of my ministry so I'm just um I'm just exploring really but I would say I would say that people are interested and that there certainly is an appetite even in a well I don't want to say even in a parish like mine but some people might think in a parish like mine which is in a deprived area where people might not be as interested in things that where they might consider to be I don't know um Academic or intellectual, uh, there is still there is still a, a desire there and a willingness to come along to catechesis sessions. We just ran a, a weekly course during Advent, uh, which we we just called Learning the Faith in Advent. And we're going to do a similar thing uh in Lent where we're just talking about the foundational. Um, doctrines of the Christian faith and just looking at them in slightly more detail. I think eventually what it would be good to do is to move on to some more sort of Catholic distinctives, which um, I haven't, I haven't um, looked into that and thought about that as much, but uh, essentially what I've been doing is just drawing on the resources that we've already mentioned. So not, not um, Staley, it must be said, but certainly, certainly Darwell Stone's outlines of Christian dogma, which I think is just one, I I wasn't aware of it, you know, just over a year ago. But I think it's one of the most helpful um, um, pedagogical resources that I've I've ever come across. And um, just trying to just trying to take bits of that, the insights that he has, um, summarise them, and then um, present them to people. Also, E. J. Bicknell's book on the thirty-nine articles. Uh, he was the principal of Cudston when he wrote it. Um, is another fantastic uh, resource. So these things, you know, I, I think it's hard to present them to people just as they are because they are. Um, well, it depends who they are. Actually, i got one. I did get a parishioner to buy um, outlines of Christian dogma and to read it because he's the kind of parishioner who would be able to engage with it really well. And he's finding it very helpful. But, you know, what I'm trying to do is just to take these resources, uh, put them in an accessible form and then to communicate them to people in order to try and sort of stimulate Uh, a bit you know a bit sort of deeper thought and reflection you know in our church we have you know 10 to 15 minute homilies um, on Sundays Uh, it's not really within the tradition of the parish to preach um, at at midweek masses so this strikes me in this current context is a good way to try and sort of deepen people's catechesis uh, deepen people's understanding of the faith Um, I do think it is an issue in the Anglo-Catholic movement, in as as I as I see it, uh, in the contemporary scene, that we don't have enough emphasis on catechesis and just on basically on on preaching and doctrine and so on. So so that's just a little bit of my experience
1: of how I've been approaching it recently. And, and Calvin, when you think back on your students when you were a teacher and the kind of questions that they had and, and the sort of searching that they're doing at that age, are there any things that are covered in this book that, that you can imagine them? Being drawn toward or, or or wondering or being
2: helped by i haven't thought of it from that perspective from, from a student's perspective someone who's studying theology you know I had yeah. statements about what conscience is for example and the only, only other place i found good um outlines of conscience is either newman or father dowler so it's, it's good to have another place to to find something on that and, you know referring back to, to natural law and all of that kind of stuff but um for, for pupils I suppose good catechesis could help with, for example, why don't we have Ribena and Smarties at the Mass? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, I suppose some churches do, but why shouldn't we? (laughs) Uh, Being able to answer those questions
1: would be helpful. Mm. Yeah. yeah, So I remember for me picking it up, it's, it's helpful that it just has kind of some practical questions answered. So coming in, I came from more evangelical and Lutheran background and there wasn't that big of an emphasis on the church year and on, I don't know, the feasts and fasts of the church and so on. And I, I remember, you know, being a, being kind of, I don't know, just rebellious teenager who just questioned things and thinking that fasting seemed sort of irrational and, and the sort of thing that overly pious prideful people do and and then reading staley's quotation from, from um pope leo about how uh, you, you know fat when we're fasting from things that are are lawful it's like training us so when we're tempted to do something that's unlawful we're, we're actually ready to resist and then and then he also talks about how it it really is a way to um not simply be a slave of your appetites, but to be a free man who, who um, practices freedom. And, and then he goes through just, okay, here, here are the reasons behind it. And he's, he's been very helpful in terms of quoting Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, talking about how when you do fast, assuming that we will, and, and then giving these reasons from the tradition about why it's good to fast. But then he says, and here, our prayer book says, you know, we, we fast on Fridays and on the ember days and in and, and Lent, and, and it's just very straightforward and helpful, because I, I had come to the conclusion that not only is Jesus Christ the way, the truth, and the life, but, but his church, the, the Church of the Saints and Martyrs, w- was the way where I should go to learn how to follow him more, more closely. But but having something like this, it was like, OK, and this is what it would look like in my tradition to actually just just walk this out or not that I do it perfectly now. But but, you know, to learn and, and be trained and challenged, uh, I found it helpful in that regard.
2: I like that the idea of temperance over denial and, uh, and understanding the difference. But even for, so, I mean, obviously, um, we're quite we're theological geeks, aren't we? And we've obviously got clergymen here and training clergymen. So it's it's obviously going to be our cup of tea. But even for the laity, even for like people that are just turning up to church once a week, there's stuff in this. Even for people that don't read any theology at home, you know, um, suggestions for a devout reception of the Holy Communion try to be in church at least five minutes before the service (laughs) (laughs) Uh, never receive the holy communion without careful preparation and then it tells you how to prepare it tells you how to receive Um, so yeah even for someone who's got very little interest in liturgy itself there's something in this i just found this such a a good all-round accessible book
0: Mm. can i can i ask a question um clinton i don't i don't want to sort of um preempt anything you might have been planning to to talk about but um i think this whole question of um education and catechesis uh more broadly is 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 very interesting and it is as i say i mean it's something that's sort of on my mind because i'm not sure it's something that i've seen done particularly well at all in my experience um Calvin, earlier on, you you said something like um, education be- begins in the home with the family. And I very much believe that um, to the extent that my wife and I are committed to homeschooling our children. Oh. And, um, you know, one of the one of the mindset changes I think that involves is that you you both are primarily responsible for educating your children in whatever it might be you know my kids are not going to learn anything at school because they're not going to school you know so it's our it's our responsibility and what happens then is it becomes like well now all of our lives are about learning and growing and um going on this journey together and it's just it's an absolutely wonderful thing i mean my children are still quite small only one of them is school age but it's a wonderful thing and i myself am am growing and learning as well and i was thinking you know as we were talking how wonderful it would be if we could somehow find a way of applying that sort of that sort of attitude to learning in the uh, growing in the faith as well And I think we have we I suppose there's an analogy with school, because in the same way as we outsource education to schools, I think as Christians, we it's very easy to outsource our spiritual growth to churches. So I guess my my sort of question is, um, how do we how do we get um, Christian families to grow in the faith together and not just rely on coming to the church to hear sermons once a week?
2: very good question and first of all it's fantastic that you're doing home educating i think more people should do that Um, i've worked in or worked with uh, about 200 schools in uh, across the country like at at this point i no longer recommend schools right that's how dire state i think we're in in whole there are some really good schools there are a few really good schools but on the whole i think we're at a point where i would rather recommend people just homeschool. and the reason for that is we have forgotten that it is a parent's responsibility to educate their child and we seem to have handed that responsibility to the state yeah. which has meant that our values have been eroded yes it, was, it has been a neo marxist project it's been a communist project you no know? Russia set out decades ago to infiltrate us with the long march through the institutions, you know, Gramsky and entryism, all of this, you can, mm-hmm. you, know, you can look into it in further detail. But the idea is that if you take away the children from their parents, you can indoctrinate them with whatever, whatever set up values you wish. And that's what's been happening. And this is why the faith has been undermined massively. So we've seen such a dip in, in the numbers of faithful because of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to reverse it, we need to do the exact opposite and take children out of school, pass on knowledge but also the values that are important to us along with that knowledge Uh, and in regards to your question of how did you do that through the church I suppose again we emphasize responsibility because all we talk about in modern culture is rights what do we have right to but every single right comes with a responsibility and that goes across the board so for example uh, we we teach um, um, candidates for confirmation or for baptism we teach them um, about the faith but do we teach anything to godparents or do we teach them about their responsibilities other than you know the, the vows that they say at the font? do we encourage them to take on board that responsibility outside of that service i doubt many of us do so that's the starting point um you know getting godparents to stand up and, and be a responsible uh, role model in their young people's lives uh through the faith mm, yeah
0: so so I hear what you're saying. So, I mean, just, just uh, also sort of a follow-up question. It's interesting to hear you say that stuff about schools, because uh, for people who might not know anything about Church of England schools, they might think, well, Church of England schools are a great place to go to sort of, um, to sort of learn about, you know, being a Christian, you know, when you're a kid. So is that, I mean, what's, what's, what's your sort of take on that?
2: Right. That that is the key question. That's the most important question because, You speak to any Muslim, speak to any Sikh, any Hindu, speak to anyone from any other faith. And they always say, oh, yeah, I want my kids to go to a Church of England school because I know what their values are. And they're quite similar to ours in a lot of ways. And or I know what they stand for. But they're so mistaken. Mm. And it's such a shame because in Church of England schools, much like most, of, uh, much like other parts of the Church of England, they're afraid to affirm our values because of this misunderstanding of inclusivity. And I can't say it enough that we we completely do not understand what that word means any longer within the church. And we seem to want to water down our own values in Mm. order to not offend other people without even consulting them. It's it's so silly. Muslims, Hindus, Sikhs, Jews, whoever you speak to, they will not be offended by Christian proclaiming Christian values because that's what they would expect, as we would expect them to do the same for theirs. Mm. However... We've gotten to a point now where we you know, we cannot be too uh, too Christian because we don't want to offend those, those poor ethnic minorities. You know, it's patronising. Mm-hmm. But in order to be more inclusive, we wipe out our own values, but then take on board other values. And that's mm-hmm. a mistake because then we've just become a bunch of pagans. Mm-hmm. And what we should do to be more inclusive is welcome absolutely anybody to be changed through an experience with Jesus Christ. That is how be inclusive as a church or as a church institution, like a Church of England school. And we need to remind all Church of in England institutions of that. You know, we could start off with just hiring Christians. That would be a good start. Yep. You know, you speak to the Roman Catholics and say, How do you have so much faith in your school? Well, first of all, they interview Christians for the jobs. In Church yeah. of England schools, you find very few Christians actually teaching kids. So, of course, they're not bothered about asking the question, Where is Christ in this lesson? Where is Christ in this topic? Where is Christ in this uh, building? Because it's of no relevance to them. It's so of no importance. So first of all, we need to hire Christians for the jobs.
1: Mm-hmm. That's actually a helpful transition to my next question, Calvin. So in addition to training for the priesthood, you are a writer who, who promotes Christian virtues and values in, in the public square. So so I wonder, as you have gone deeper into the Christian theology and uh, and learn more about the faith, how this has informed your social thought? Um,
2: So I do try to at least write everything I write or say everything that I say through a Christian lens. That's not always easy, it's not always possible, but I do try to to center on those values, but it's just keeping them at the forefront. Um, How has that formed? Uh, I suppose on a basic level, faith, hope and love, but on a wider level, sound orthodoxy so trying to come at these issues from a charitable perspective such as the trans issue or gay marriage or something that's really controversial like that trying to be charitable about it but affirming affirmative trying to be confident in you know the faith teaches this or scripture says that or the church teaches us this and not being ashamed of that Again, it comes back to the inclusivity of, well, we mustn't upset this minority community. It's not about upsetting the community. It's about loving them by being honest with them and mm. teaching them the truth.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So that's, and it's interesting as well, isn't it, that you've actually had very positive feedback when you've when you've done this, this when you've uh, taken this approach in front, you know, when you've been on TV or on the radio, you've taken this approach and actually it hasn't provoked widespread outcry and offense but people have actually thanked you for your honesty and for your candor is that right
2: yeah absolutely so i get so many private messages and emails all the time and the vast majority of them at this point are things like thank you for just being an christian you know not saying i'm a god botherer or not being bashful about it but just saying you know i'm a christian that is a big step in 2021 for some reason um and things like you know i've picked up a bible for the first time in my life or um, I've been awakened to this, or just thank you for speaking the truth and not cowering. And because we capitulate so often, we tread on eggshells around so many issues because we're afraid of causing offense. And we should never set out to cause offense, but we shouldn't be afraid of the truth causing offense. And I think that's something that the church is very, very guilty of at the moment uh, through a lot of conversations. And people don't want it. People just want honesty. People, you know, we grew up in a world of, I mean, I'm generational speaking here, but we grew up in a world of, of science and, and post-enlightenment questioning everything to a point of you're no longer allowed to question certain topics just in case it offends someone. In fact, you're not even allowed to have an opinion on certain topics unless it directly affects you. Therefore, the public square has been shut down. And, and actually, instead of, instead of liberating minorities, it's actually oppressed the majority. And this is going to cause a lot of trouble because we have a silent majority that is bubbling to the surface if they know what the truth is, but they're not allowed to accept it anymore. They're not mm. allowed to think it and never mind speak it. So we need people that are going to proclaim the truth in not just what they say, but in the way that they live. Mm. Yeah,
0: it's such a such an important message for the church, for I, I would say, as particularly for ministers within the church to have confidence in the gospel, confidence in the scriptures, confidence in the tradition of the church, and to be bold in our proclamation of it. And you're quite right, Calvin, that really we're living in an increasingly censorious atmosphere. And I choose that word intentionally. The word atmosphere, I mean, because a lot of the time it's not something that we're even consciously aware of, but we feel this pressure to water things down, to tiptoe around issues, and to not give clear answers. And really, I've had a, I've uh, have similar experience to you, maybe not on the same scale, but certainly what what happens when you say things clearly, when you speak plainly, when you proclaim things boldly, is it cuts through the white noise, you know, it cuts through all the crap for people. and it actually it actually it's actually a very, very meaningful thing. and you know, to to apply this more more broadly, if you look at some of these people who have become, enormously influential somebody like i'm thinking like somebody like jordan peterson for example it's obviously he's he's you know his relationship with christianity is is somewhat um ambiguous but he has an amazing ability to speak candidly and clearly and to connect with people and i think a big part of why he does why he connects with people so much is precisely for that reason because they don't think that he's trying to he's trying to um speak in a way which is obscure to pull the wool over over their eyes to obfuscate things you can trust him and i think a lot of people just don't trust the church they don't trust clergymen because they think there's some kind of agenda going on there so i think that's something we really need to work on
2: yeah absolutely i think it's the same reason we don't trust politicians because you hear the words that they're saying and they, they kind of make logical sense but it's not what they actually mean but of course, we're, we're called to proclaim the truth quite literally. That's what we're called to do. So if we're not doing it, what whose work are we doing? Because it's not Christ's. Yeah.
1: Indeed, indeed. I agree. Okay. All, all right. So, so on that note, for a final question, it seems like one of the themes that we keep coming back to is that there's a crisis of confidence in the church right now. So it, there are many um, priests, teachers, and and Christians who are not willing to boldly teach what the scriptures and the tradition say uh, are, 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 are the truths about reality, what it means to, to be a person made in the image of God, what it means to, to worship God, what it means to live a a holy life. You know, people are, people are afraid that they'll be rejected or misunderstood or hated or, or um, seen as ignorant but one of the things I noticed as I was reading Staley is he has a real modesty about his own, his own knowledge and about his, his own kind of So You don't see him constantly citing contemporary social theory or uh, the latest secular fad or whatever, mm. but you see him citing scripture, the fathers, the, the scholastics, um, the Ang- Anglican divine. So he, he has a, a real confidence in the work that, that has been done through um, God's church and and through God's um, re- revelation in Scripture and in Christ, and and so he's he's very humble about himself and his generation and confident in in God, Christ, and the church. And so, as as an educator, um, and and as a an, an ordinant, when you look at the the church of england and you look at church of england schools and so on what would you say to to priests and ordinance who are thinking about how can we reach this generation that's so confused and and lonely and searching you know what what would be just a a couple things that you'd want them to go away thinking about uh from this from this conversation
2: yeah uh first of all to address what you just said about people not wanting to be hated i'll say you know Mm -hmm. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Uh, and we need to remember that because it's important to know that it's okay to be hated for the right reasons. Mm. Uh, uh, and in answer to what would I recommend, I would say stick to, to the transcendentals. Uh, I honestly think that there has been an assault on Western, on the Western way of life. And to do that, one of the, one of the uh, practical ways they've done that is destroyed the family. Uh, as in we don't very often see healthy ideal families anymore and we've given away like we talked about earlier responsibilities of of our younger generation to the state but the way they do it uh, and uh, so that's the practical side but the methodology is they attack the transcendentals of truth Mm -hmm. beauty and goodness they've made the they've made truth subjective they've taken away the objective uh the universal truth and said that anyone can have their own you know personal truth my truth as they call it Uh, They deny beauty, and we know that beauty is objective because beauty directs our gaze towards God, and that's probably one of the reasons they've destroyed our idea of beauty. You know, you can look at anything from modern architecture, everything being steel and glass. Uh, I know it's like a typical old-fashioned cliche to say, they don't make them like they used to, but they really don't. Hmm. And and what used to be, you know, look at the Renaissance period, the most beautiful art ever made, because it was all directing our gaze toward God, and now it's all about the self. Hmm. Uh, because it's idolatry, and goodness, they've changed what it means to be good quite literally. You know, all of these—you know—people can have whatever opinions they want on things like Black Lives Matter and antifa fur and uh, Extinction Rebellion. But what they do is they redefine what's good. To be a good person, you have to have a rainbow flag
1: uh,
2: in your Twitter name. You have to have pronouns in your bio. You have to have a black square on Instagram, and that's all it takes to be good. You don't actually have to do anything. You don't have to feed the poor. You don't have to help anybody. You don't even have to be. You don't even have to love your neighbor. In fact, it's it's a good idea to hate your neighbor under these new ideologies, unless your neighbor subscribes to what they subscribe to. Um, so they've changed the meaning of truth, beauty, and goodness. And what we need to do is take them back because we know what they mean. Because they're based in scripture, they're based in tradition, they're based in reason, uh, and we need to proclaim them from the rooftops. And the more we do that, the more people will be attracted to what we're saying because it is the truth, and that's all people want to hear. Uh, just look, you know, look at the analytics, look at the geographical data, look at the numbers falling in the church, and then look at churches in South America or other parts of the world where they are proclaiming truth, beauty, and goodness. The numbers are rising. Or look at, look on Twitter, look at your local bishop, see how many followers they have, and then look at someone like John Peterson, and see how many followers they have. I mean, I'm simple, oversimplifying it, but what I'm saying is that. Truth, beauty, and goodness, or what are important, and people have an innate knowledge of what they mean because God imparted that on us. And people are trying to defile defile God, and people are trying to turn us away and distract us from God. And we have to not let that happen.
1: All right, you heard it here. Don't hide your light under a bushel. Uh, so, so Christ is is uh, the source, goodness, truth, and beauty, and we 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 want to tell people that the search will lead to Him. Okay. Thank you so much, Kelvin, for coming on. This was a lot of fun. And uh, with, with all your different kind of areas of interest and and uh, skills and background, I think you, you bring a lot to this conversation about catechesis. I'm excited to see what what happens when you become a priest, uh, when when you s- set up a C of E school of your own. It'll, it'll be good to see uh, how you put these things into play. That's Absolutely. very kind of you, Clinton, but it's if I become a priest. And it's not just <laughs> God willing, it's uh, hierarchy God willing, God willing
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: Fantastic. Okay, well, um, let's draw things to a close then. Uh, Thanks to you, Clinton. Thanks again to you, Calvin, for your very, very interesting and compelling reflections there. I'm sure lots of people will be listening to this feeling very uh, encouraged and ready for action, ready to enter into the fray and the battle for goodness, truth and beauty. So thank you for that. And thank you to all our listeners. You can follow us on Twitter at E one and send us an email if you'd like to give any feedback or thoughts on any aspects of these podcasts to holycv at gmail.com. Do remember to rate and review the podcast and share with your friends and family and anyone you think might be interested. And subscribe in your favorite podcatcher. Thank you so much, and we'll be with you again next time.